folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis, Christianity in Genesis. Where do we see the person and work of Christ, first and foremost, and how can we speak of his body, the church, those who live and move and have their being in him throughout this book? In what way is this book Christian scripture, that is, not just an old history book, ancient Near Eastern literature kind of thing, but texts that continue to bear witness to show us something about Christ and our life in him. On the docket today, quite a doozy. Maybe you've, you know this one or have heard of it, uh, the so-called Table of Nations in chapter 10. Yes, I'm going to do a whole podcast on a huge list of nations. Uh, maybe this will be a little shorter than usual, but nonetheless, I'm going to go for it here. After chapter 9, we had Noah's descendants and, uh, well, his drunkenness, and then the three sons, the different approaches to Noah's sin, his drunkenness. Ham gets cursed, Shem is blessed, and then Yepheth kind of gets uh, a sub-blessing, as it were. We talked a little bit about this last time. Just real quick recap is that Shem is the one through whom our Lord will uh, come. This is the, the descendant that uh, gets all the attention, the genealogy of Shem. The Messiah comes in this genealogy, and so there you have it. Shem also means name. The name uh, shame in Hebrew is the word for name, kind of easy to remember when it rhymes like that. Shem, in, in uh, English, we just we put the, the short E in there, Shem, but uh, in Hebrew it would be pronounced shame, and it means name. And that's great because of uh, of Noah's sons, he names them Name, or Shem, and then Yafeth, which means he will enlarge you, as in you will be grafted in. These are peeps who aren't, strictly speaking, biological, um, physical descendants of Shem, and yet our Lord will graft them into that olive tree, as Romans 9 through 11 talks about. And then finally, those who want nothing to do with those promises, well, that's the son uh, Ham, who is, as the text tells us multiple times, the father of Canaan, which is always this kind of like, hey, the Canaanites, those are the ones who want nothing to do with God's promises. Um, unlike uh, you know somebody like Rahab, who is a, hey, Canaanite, and yet at the same time, I have heard of you, and I am convinced that this is the one true God. So nonetheless, there you have it. I mean, that's a history, just in Noah's sons, that's a history of the church of all times and places, the Christian church the church uh, founded in the one who comes from Shem and then who grafts in those of Yepheth and then uh, who has a word to say, a judgment to pronounce uh, against those who want nothing to do with it, the ones of Ham. Okay, So when you get to chapter 10, again, a focus on this royal line. We've had genealogies in the Bible before. Chapter 5 is a classic one where it's kind of like a up, after the Cain and Abel thing, let's redo this. Let's talk about this genealogy all over again. It's a new beginning. It's like Cain and Abel never happened. Flood that, wipe that genealogy. And uh, in, in chapter 5, it's Adam has what? Well, he fathered a son, Seth. 
and then Seth uh, has um, Enosh and so on. That's the line now. And so also in chapter 10, the first verse, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We already know this, and yet it's hugely important to track the promised seed, even to name our kids after this promised seed, to confess that the Lord will do something through this promised kid that will tell us about this promised seed. Um, That's also why you get these names that you do. I mean, that's also why you get this, the idea that Luther was big on every one of these in the in the special genealogies you get, like the one for Seth and the one for Shem here we're going to talk about a little bit, um, you get this sense that these are your high priests too. This is a testimony also to the ministry that uh, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the office of the holy ministry. The Lord will preserve this as well. He will preserve the preaching. He will preserve the priesthood. He will preserve that promise given in Genesis 3.15. Okay, so again, um, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. And notice chapter 10 is going to track the sons of Japheth first. You see that in chapter 2, verse 2. Then you see the sons of Ham, that's in verse 6. And then you see the sons of Shem in 21. This is kind of an elaboration of the point we ended with on chapter 9, that through these three sons, you're going to see a history of the whole world. And that's done in a fascinating way here in chapter 10. Uh, First up is Yepheth. It's as if the Lord is telling you, these are the ones, this is how I'm going to graft in. I'm going to give you these nations of the... It's just, it's fascinating how chapter 10 tells you, it's almost like the, the whole story of the Bible is being rehearsed in a way via genealogies here. As you get into this, sons of Japheth, you get a whole bunch of names. Gomer, Magog, Madal, Javan, so on. And then you get the the special treatment of certain ones, like the sons of Gomer, then the sons of Javan. And uh, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Already you kind of hear this, wait, the coastlands and the peoples who... Wait, okay, the prophets will say a lot about the peoples of the coastlands, the prophets, the psalms, this, the prayers about, wait a minute, uh, even in, our, in the New Testament, for people coming from east and west and so on, reclining at the table of Abraham. These are people that our Lord still very much has on his radar and will find a way to bring the gospel to. In Isaiah especially, you get this kind of, Whoa, the gospel's overflowing into the peoples of the coastlands. You get the reference to coastlands quite a bit. And these are the peoples that, by the work of the Holy Spirit, some at least will come to confess that gospel as well. So you already have this kind of, before we even tell you um, very much about, you know, why we have all these different nations, or even, as we'll see here, um, the different languages will be mentioned as well. Hey, we don't even have that until chapter 11, and yet already it's, yeah, we do have the, you know, the Tower of Babel thing, but let's just tell you the, the big point first, and that is the Lord will send his gospel through Shem, that line, in the midst of all these other nations who, according to our Lord's providential care, he will extend that gospel as he sees fit to all these other nations with all these other languages the rest of the Bible will kind of unpack how he how he does that. We'll learn, for example, through Je- through Abe, 
that it was, I'll pick you for the sake of all people. All families of the earth will be blessed. I'll pick uh, Israel for the sake of other nations and so on. So you already get this kind of in a microcosm here that, yeah, we have all of our attention on Shem, but the Lord has never forgotten all these other people. He cares very much about them. He speaks of them at length sometimes, even before his own people. As you see here in chapter 10, the next is what? Sons of Shem? No, it's the sons of Ham next. Cush and Egypt. Oh boy, Egypt and Canaan. Oh boy, Canaan. These are all big problems for Israel. Why are they getting mentioned before his own people? It's like this father knowing that he has a kid that's kind of gone wayward. He hasn't forgot. Is is not Ephraim my dear child, the Lord will say in Hosea. I do remember them very much, even in the midst of all their rebellion. As you look here further in the sons of Ham, Cush, Father Nimrod. Every once in a while you get a little you know, a special little note about one of these individuals. And here you get that with Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Um, Maybe I should read the rest. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel, Eric, Akkad, uh, Kalna, and then in the land of Shinar. From there he went on to build Assyria and built Nineveh. Okay, a few things. Nimrod as a mighty warrior. We learned in chapter 6 that when the sons of God were interacting with the daughters of man, um, they were surrounded by Nephilim, which is a fancy word for fallen ones, surrounded by people known by how far they have fallen, known by how they cause others to fall. Uh, They're also surrounded by mighty ones, warriors, gibberims, people with power, men of name, and and the word there is Shem, men of Shem or men of shame. Men of name usually is translated men of renown. In other words, God's people are always tempted to enter into these idolatrous relationships with people around them who have power and renown or power and influence in this world. And I think this special reference to Nimrod here as the first on earth to be a mighty man, or I guess you could translate that like he began to be a mighty man on the earth or something like that, this is a reminder of that reality of Genesis 6. It's like an illusion like, we, we're giving more historical detail to the outworkings of Genesis 6. Like when we talked about the sons of God being surrounded by mighty warriors, Nimrod is a classic example of that. Every age will have its Nimrod, as it were. Mighty hunters before the Lord. Um, we'll learn later that the devil himself prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that comes to expression in many and various ways. Um, Satan enters into Judas, you know, that kind of thing where it's, what's, what's up with the talking serpent, you know, Satan embodying or possessing the snake or whatever. Um, the, the devil appears as an angel of light and yet works through, boy, subtle ways. You hear the beasts in Revelation, it's working through speech in very subtle ways. Uh, cunning words and so on. Every 
generation will have its nimrods, mighty hunters before the Lord. I think that's why, therefore it is said, like a, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, like someone who is on the prowl against the Lord. That's what Nimrod stands for. Um, and that's why, I mean, it just doesn't sound good, does he? The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. I mean, some people thought B- Nimrod is directly behind the Tower of Babel because, like, uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Well, okay, that didn't go so well. What kind of guy is this? And Shinar is also referenced in chapter 11. And then Assyria and built Nineveh. Like, oh, my goodness, Assyria, that's also a huge problem for Israel later. Nineveh, what a terrible, evil place. Just read Nahum. Okay, and so this is kind of like, this is the deal with with Nimrod. You give these kind of indications of every age will have this kind of high-octane persecution against the church. Every age will have its Tower of Babels. Every age will have its Assyrias and its Ninevehs, these great cities. I mean, this is no different than Revelation talking about the great city of Babylon, it's picking up on all this, wait, we have our Babylons all the time. Where, for example, are we seeing this kind of quest for a utopia? Uh, this entering into the heavenly places by our own means and devices instead of our Lord's holy means of grace and so on. Um, Egypt fathered Ludim, Amamim, Lehabim, Nephatulhim. Anytime you get in uh, trouble with you, just saying with confidence, like you know what you're, what you're doing here. The Kusahim, from whom the Philistines came, and uh, the Keftorim. So this is another indication that, hey, the Philistines, you read this later on, they're also a thorn in the side for, for, um, for Israel. And yet at the same time, here we give this indication. That's much later, and yet... Genesis already gives you the kind of foretaste of the bigger story right here, right now. Uh, and so as you, I don't know, as you read later, you see that unfold as, a, as by way of foretaste, but also as you reread Genesis, you see, oh, in Genesis already is a kind of little mini picture of the Christian church and its relationship to all peoples of the world regardless of how hostile in all times and places. So I'll say more about that real soon, but let's uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. 
And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 10, the so-called Table of Nations. We just talked a little bit about these sons of Ham. Uh, Canaan descends from Ham, and that's the next one up here when you get to verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, these all sound very familiar, don't they? These are the kinds of nations that are mentioned. Well, they're Canaanite nations. They're mentioned again and again in Deuteronomy. Like when you go over to the land to possess, you know, and you dispossess the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Moabites, you know, this kind of thing. These are all these descendants, these Canaanites that are mentioned here. Again, this is already like, this is like a little, the book of Deuteronomy in a, in a nutshell here, this kind of the dispossession of the nations. You get that queued up already here, even though um, Genesis 10 talks about stuff that, uh, that we don't have a full account for. Like when you get to the end of that little section in verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages. <laughs> their lands and their nations. Hey, Tower of Babel hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's okay, because what we're doing here is we're kind of giving you, in a nutshell, these these three big deal sons for the history of the church of all times and places, um, including the persecution side of things, like we'll see in all these nations. Don't marry a Moabite. <laughs> Um, don't compromise on the gospel. Be very careful. Marriage is like the epitome. Any relationship that compromises the gospel is not a good situation, obviously, but marriage is kind of the epitome of that because that's the one flesh union. That's the biggest, best union out there. Um, so here you have, and yet what happens, the Lord shows indications all along that he's very much concerned with how the gospel goes out to these nations. Ruth is a Moabite. <laughs> Like, that's just, and she's in the line of David. Uh, so that's just, I mean, that's the beauty of these things. Every now and then you get that Rahab. Again, I mentioned her earlier, Canaanite prostitute. She's not an Israelite. And yet she hears the gospel, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of conversion. She's representative of all those who hear the gospel through God's people at, throughout Exodus and exile. Um those who hear and and convert and and are grafted into that to that olive tree again as mentioned in Romans so uh there you have it and then you get to the to Shem also how is it all this is it possible to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber and that's very important to take a note of because Eber from Eber comes all the from is Abraham and uh, hence the Israelites. And so that's the connection between people of Israel to Shem right there. There are a lot more details in there, but the sons of Shem, um, this father of all the children of Eber, Eber's going to be mentioned later, but that's the connection there. We're jumping over We're jumping over a bunch of sons to connect Shem to Eber there in verse 21. Shem to Israel, basically, is how I take that. The elder brother of Yepheth, children were born... Sons of Shem, then you get the list there. The sons of Aram, 
And then you get the connection to Eber there. To Eber were born two sons, Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided. Uh, That's what Peleg means as a verb in Hebrew that means that. And then Joktan and his descendants. And then you get down to the territories here, which already gives, wait, I thought we're just doing names here. Do you see what happened already? When you get to uh, the Shem, okay, promised line, and then the people of Israel through via Eber, okay, wait a minute. All of a sudden, we start talking territories, and I love this because even in the midst of this genealogy, we're already getting a sense of, wait, they have land too? Why is it important who has what land? Well, this promised son who is to come also has a promised land. Inheritance, the territory in which they lived, extended from Meshah in the direction of Shefer to the hill country of the east, which was mentioned earlier, really, when you get into all these, where are all these other nations and peoples? Well, they're spreading all over, including the east. Peoples from the east, you know, that's the kind of the magi from the east. You know, you get that indication elsewhere. Um, so this, wait, can the people from the east, this land is allotted and, and it, can the people from the east get get in on this, or this land includes regions of the east, the hill country of the east? Is there already this some kind of blending of yeah, there's a special line, but it's for the sake of all, like we'll hear about through through Abe's promise explicitly in chapter twelve. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. I love this. We haven't even had the Tower of Babel yet, and yet the one who is to come from Shem has many clans, languages, lands, nations. This is just the beauty of, it's like Revelation 7, where you get the 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, and all of a sudden it's from every tribe, nation, peoples, and languages, singing praise to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Wait a minute, this whole Shem thing all along was for the sake of all the nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. The one to come from Noah through Shem gives a name, has the name above all names. Again, Shem means name. And will give rest, which is what Noah means, Noah. Again, these name, everything is giving some indication about this person, the promised one to come, uh, who will graft in peoples from all nations, tribes, languages, and nations, uh, peoples all over because of his death on the cross and how the Holy Spirit works through the proclamation of that death to draw people in the one true faith unto everlasting life. Fascinating stuff here. Genesis 10, I mean, it's a list of nations, but at the same time you get this kind of, if you forget everything else, a kind of microcosm, a picture of the the nature and character of the Christian church, its foundation, its lifeblood, its relationship to all peoples of all times and places throughout all all of history, all there in one one chapter. Fascinating stuff. Hey, we're going to call it there. Tune in next time. We'll tackle that Tower of Babel and the aftermath.
in the next episode. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.